Now, my people are used to me giving them a notepad or something that they can write on, a place where they can take notes. You don't have that this morning. You're going to have to scribble in the back cover of your Bible or maybe in your Bible or on your hands. Um, You'll just have to make do this morning to take your notes as best you can. But Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36 are two verses from the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um. And there are some things in these two verses that I think that are particularly relevant to understanding what it means to live as a Christian and as a child of God. Now, currently, I spend most of my Sundays on this side of the pulpit. But that doesn't mean that I've forgotten what it's like to be on the other side where you are. There were times when I was doing my best to listen to the sermon... And even though I was trying my hardest, my mind would begin to wander. Can you identify with that? You're trying to listen. I know what the pastor has to say is good, but my mind just began to wander. And although technically I was still hearing everything that was said, in truth, I had stopped listening and my mind and thoughts were miles away. The pastor's words had become a sort of background noise to my mind's other thoughts. But sometimes, the speaker, while I was caught in this state of semi-daydreaming, would say something that would catch my ear again, jolting me out of my daydream and regaining my attention. And I think that is what we have here in these two verses from the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If your mind had begun to wander, if you had been back when Jesus was preaching, and I'm not saying that anybody would ever have their mind wander when Jesus was speaking, but maybe you'd traveled a long way to get there, and maybe it was kind of hot out there on the side of the mountain, and maybe you were just a little bit worn out from a long day's work the day before, and your mind had begun to wander. Well, when Jesus said... What he says in verses 35 and 36, he says something that is so opposite of how I think and how I live that it would regain my attention and I think it would regain yours. Did he just say what I think he said? What does he mean by that? Well, if you have your Bibles open to that passage, let's go ahead and read those two short verses. From the middle of the sermon. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to be gathered as your people. And gathered under your word. Your written word is such that it contains authority and truth that we should treat it and respond to it with no less urgency and devotion as if you were here speaking audibly to us. So God, take your word this morning. And speak to our hearts and our lives. Show us what we need to learn. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. And correct us 
where we need to be corrected so that we might grow to become more like your son Jesus. Amen. Well, let's just spend a few minutes picking our way back through this short passage. What did Jesus just say? What did he just say? But love your enemies. But love your enemies. We in the Christian church world, we're used to hearing that so often, we don't even hear it anymore. Love your enemies, that's standard church talk, right? <laughs> love my enemies, I'm loving it. I'm part of it, I'm loving my enemies. That's what it means to be a Christian. It goes by so quick, we don't even think about it. See, it's one thing to love your parents, to love your spouse, your children, your brothers and sisters, your, pet, your pets, and perhaps even your favorite sports team. It's easy to understand how you should and can love those things, but to love my enemies? By definition, an enemy is someone who is unlovable. An enemy doesn't love you and wants to see harm and difficulty come your way. How do you love somebody like that? But yet, that's what it says, but love your enemies. Okay, I love my enemy. There, that's it. Satisfied? Got it out of the way. How many people say, I love my enemies? I love my enemies. Yeah. Not so fast. There's something more to it. There's more to loving your enemy than just saying the words. Look at what it continues to say. It says, love your enemies and do good. We've got to do good for our enemies. To love our enemies will require us to take some kind of action that is for their good, for their benefit. To do them good, we must find ways that will promote their welfare, provide for their happiness, and work for their prosperity. That's what it means to do good. They not, might not be looking out for us and for our interests, but in order to do good for them, we must look out for them and for their interests. Love your enemies, do good, and lend. One way we are to do good for our enemies is by lending to them. Lending means allowing them to use and benefit from something that you have. If I have something and you need it or could use it and I let you borrow it, that's lending. You understand how that works. Used to be people would come over and borrow a cup of sugar, and you'd say, oh, yeah, here, have a cup of sugar. And you would expect, you know, they'd take it and make a cake or whatever, and a little while back, later they'd bring it back. But you'd let them have the sugar so that they could make whatever they were making. What do you have that would make your enemy's life better if they had it? What is it that you have that would make your enemy's life better if they had the use of it. Your lawnmower? Your favorite tools? Some groceries? Your car? Your influence? Your time? Your money? Are you willing to offer those things to someone who doesn't like you? and who will probably abuse and misuse whatever you lend to them? The answer to that question will help you to discern whether or not you truly are loving your enemies. It's easy to say the words, 
but to get down to the business of loving our enemies will take some sacrifice. We need to come to face with the reality of whether or not we are truly loving our enemies or whether we are just continuing to love ourselves. Look at the next line. Look at what it says there. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. (laughs) That isn't how lending works. That's not how lending works. You know, if we had to think, that's not how it works. When the bank lends you money so you can buy your house, they have some expectations, don't they? Or maybe you borrowed money to buy a car. When you do that, the lender has some expectations, don't they? Yeah. They expect you to make monthly payments to them. They expect you to pay that money back, don't they? I'll tell you what, if you don't make the car payment, try that a couple months in a row. You'll walk out in the morning ready to go to car, go to work. You've got your keys in your hand and all there is is a nice spot in your driveway where a car ought to be. Do that with the electric company at your house. And as the sun goes down, it will be darker and darker where you live. See, they've loaned you the electricity on the idea that you'll pay for it. The banks don't just want you to pay back the original loan amount. What else do they want? They want interest. See, if you borrow $500 from the bank, you don't just pay back $500. You pay back $500 plus interest. The more money that you pay for the privilege of borrowing. Can you imagine going to a bank where they loan money and expected nothing in return? That would be my bank if I, could, if I could find it. How about you? Take it. Don't worry about it. After all, our slogan is, we give it away and we don't let you pay it back. That's my kind of bank. Oh, that I could find a bank like that. But how about us? When you loan somebody your lawnmower, you at least expect to get back your mower, don't you? It's pretty much expected that whoever you loan it to will bring back your mower. And the unsaid and unspoken expectation is that they will bring it back with a full tank of gas. But Jesus tells us to lend without expecting anything in return. In other words, be ready to lend to your enemy expecting that your enemy will take advantage of you, your kindness, and your generosity. If you do good and lend this way, it says, your reward will be great. If you do these things, not for what you can earn or receive back, in other words, not to make a profit or to improve your own position, then there will be a payoff for you. Your reward, the word there is pay, what you should expect, your reward will be great or much. It's going to be a good turn back. Maybe you'll get two tanks of gas back. It would be sort of the analogy there. If you 
live this way, the Bible says, that you won't lose, but instead you will get a good return. Instead of trusting your enemy to pay you back, you trust God to take care of you. The truth is that you and I can't do this on our own. Not if we're living according to the world's standards and the world's values. The only way that you and I can do this is if our treasure, the treasure that we value the most, is situated in the next life and not in this one. If all my treasure is here, I'm going to have a hard time letting go of it because I need it. And I'm sorry that you need it, but I need it more. But if I have the mindset and the understanding that I'm laying up treasure in heaven, then the things that I have here I'm free to spend and lend. Because I know that my heavenly Father has my inheritance safely secure for me. I don't need to worry about collecting for me. My Father has that under control. The verses go on to say, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. The Most High is who? God. will be sons of the Most High. If you do this, you will be sons of the Most High. Is this telling us how to be saved then? Is this, is this passage telling us how we can be saved? Does this mean that we become children of God by being good and kind to our enemies? Is that what it's saying? Well, no. Of course not. Salvation isn't something you earn by being good and doing the right things. That's not what it's saying at all. This is telling us that this is what God's children do. This is how God's children live. This is how God's people live. If we live like this, then you'll be the sons of the Most High. Then you'll be like the children of God. This is how God acts. And His children act too. And that's what it goes on to say. It says about God, it says, For He is what? Kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Have you stopped to think for a moment? This is what our God is like. God is kind to those who are unlovable and undeserving. God loves his enemies. And doesn't that perfectly describe his relationship between him and you, if you've come to know him? From Romans 5, we see this explained where it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. It goes on to say, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God puts out his love towards us while we were still his enemies. God loves his enemies. From 1 John 4, it says, this is love, not that we loved God. We didn't initiate this. But God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved you and provided his son to be the way of forgiveness and salvation when you were still living as his enemy. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then it says, be merciful even as your father 
is merciful. Treat your enemies the way that God treats his enemies. God takes the initiative to love his enemies. How about you? As God's children, we should love our enemies in the same way that God does. So there are two verses that have jolted us out of our daydream. But what do we do with them now? What is the purpose of these verses? Why are these verses in the sermon? What's the whole deal? Since we know that all scripture is inspired and useful, what's the useful purpose of these verses? What's useful about this? What are we supposed to be learning? What are we supposed to be having corrected? What are, what, what, what are we supposed to be trained from here? Is the main purpose of these verses to lay upon us a particularly difficult command? Is that the whole purpose? Is it just to point out and say, hey, you know what? You're pretty selfish and you don't love your enemies. You better start loving your enemies. Boom, let's go home. Is that the main purpose of this? Is it simply about telling us to be nice to people who are not nice to us? Or, just perhaps, is it pointing out to us something about the fundamental essence of what it means to live as a Christian and as a child of God? Let's turn back in your Bibles just a page or two to a familiar story about Jesus in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. It's nice to hear the pages rustling. At least you're pretending. But Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 50. How many of your Bibles have like that little heading right there that sort of tells you what's going on? So you kind of have, even without reading, you can see what's going on. The boy Jesus in the temple. This is the story where Mary and Joseph can't find the boy Jesus, remember? They'd been in Jerusalem for the Passover and were traveling home to Nazareth when they discovered that Jesus was not with them. Any parent who's ever lost a child for a minute or two can sort of relate to the frantic and fear responses that Joseph and Mary might have had. It says they had already gone about a day's journey when they discovered that the 12-year-old Jesus was not with them. Can you imagine? They thought maybe he was with relatives or somewhere in the caravan, but he wasn't with them. They were already gone about a day from the city. They didn't know if he was with somebody else or if he was still back in the city or if he'd fallen off the trail. They don't know. So what did they do? They headed back to Jerusalem to find them. And in verse 46 it says, after, get this, three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. After three days. You know what this tells me? The temple probably wasn't the first place they went looking. This wasn't the first place they went. They went to the playgrounds, you know? They, they, they went to the movie theater. They went to all these other places kind of looking for Jesus, but he wasn't there. And finally, they're just worn out. They just happened to be going by the temple. There he is in the temple after three days. His parents were understandably upset and said to the boy Jesus, here in verse 48, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
Now listen to Jesus' response. Why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Why were you looking for me? You could have easily found me. Didn't you know that I, had, I was supposed to be in my father's house? I'll tell you something just a little about the translation here. The Greek word for house is not in the original. And I think this is a case where the King James Version actually does a better job of capturing what Jesus is saying here. Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Where does God's business take place in Jesus' day? In the temple. Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus is saying something very profound about who he is and what should be expected of him. Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And there's a reason that Jesus did not say, You're right, Mom. (laughs) I should have been hurrying back with you and Dad to the carpenter shop. There's a reason he didn't say that. You can probably just look across the page, and in Luke chapter 3, what we have is Jesus' family tree in verses 23 through 38. And the first of it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. He wasn't Joseph's son, was he? He was born of the Virgin Mary. But we have to go all the way to the beginning of Jesus' family tree to be reminded of who his real father was. Jesus is and was the Son of God. I've taken us through all that to make a point about the significance of sonship. Our culture's primary view of sonship is in relation to privilege. Because I'm a son, I get the family name. Because I'm a son, I get the family inheritance. Because I'm a son, I get the family's authority. Because I'm a son, I can use the family car. Because I'm a son, I'm able to help myself to whatever's in the kitchen. These are all the privileges that come along with being a son. But understand... That the prevailing view of sonship throughout the ages and cultures is not necessarily one of privilege, but of occupation. Throughout most of the world and throughout most of history, sonship was most closely associated with what you do. If your dad was a farmer, you would be a farmer. If your father was a baker, you would be a baker. If your dad was a carpenter... You'd be a carpenter. People could tell whose son you were by seeing what you did and seeing how you lived. It was natural for the boy Jesus to be in the temple being about his father's business because he's the son of God. Luke 6, 35 through 36 tells us a little bit about the business that our heavenly father is in. Our father is in the mercy business. And his sons are in the mercy business too. Loving our enemies. How do you love people who hate you just because you're a Christian? 
Loving our enemies is what we're called to do. From what I see on Facebook, most Christians consider Muslims as their enemies. Would you agree with that? As you look up and down the posts on Facebook, don't we see, oh, who's, who's the Christian's enemy? It's the Muslims, right? They hate us. They declare jihad on us. They want to kill us. What does it look like to love our enemies in a case like that? Are the posts that we're posting loving? Our Father's in the mercy business where He loves His enemies and we are to love our enemies as well. He's also kind to the ungrateful, it says. How do you love a teenage child who rejects your values but yet continues to depend upon and accept your protection and your provision? What does it look like to love when the people that you've done the most for are the same people that appreciate it the very least? He's kind to the ungrateful. It's not easy to be kind to the ungrateful, is it? Our fathers in the mercy business where we are to love our enemies, be kind to the ungrateful and kind to the evil. How do we treat those who have declared war against the biblical standard of moral decency? How do we display love and kindness to those who promote immoral lifestyles? Do we boycott Target? while we keep on watching episodes of Keeping Up with the Kardashians? How do we love those on the other side of the right to life issue? How do we love them? I know how we condemn them. How do we love them? What will it look like when you deal with unscrupulous men in business dealings? What will it look like to love those kind of people? Kind to the evil. You see, by faith, we've been adopted as sons of God. And I want to challenge you this morning, when you think about what it means to be a child of God, to not simply think of it in terms of blessing and privilege, but to think of it in terms of occupation. Our God is holy. We need to get in the holy business. Our God is loving. We need to be in the loving business. Our God is merciful. We need to be in the mercy business. We need to be about all those things. But living as a child of God in this way, taking on the business of our Father in this way, whether it's the pursuit of holiness or the pursuit of mercy towards those who are Difficult to love. In those cases, living as a child of God requires, it it demands a supernatural change in us. This isn't something that's just put on your to-do list, go love your enemies. That's only born out of a supernatural change. 
See, our fundamental attitude toward those who don't like us and who don't like the things we stand for must be transformed. If we want to see our communities impacted, if we want people to catch a glimpse of the glory of God in our lives, then we've got to be about apprenticing ourselves through the power of the Spirit to the work and business of our Heavenly Father. And apart from God's supernatural enablement, we can never truly love our enemies or do good to them. It's a natural byproduct of being a child of God. So know who you are and pursue your father's business. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and for the reminder of not only the privilege of what it means to be a child of yours, but also the occupation of what it means to be your child. God, help us to be about your business. Help us to observe your son Jesus and to learn from him what it means to live as a true child of God. Amen.